from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo estás? Te habla Arelis Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 30th. Today, what Biden's cabinet choices can tell us about the Biden presidency and the next steps for administering vaccines. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Today, I'm pleased to announce nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. Last week, the Trump appointee at the head of the General Services Administration finally authorized the transition to the Biden presidency. Since then, President-elect Joe Biden has made a steady stream of announcements about his choices for members of his cabinet, his staff, and his administration. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. You're seeing with Biden, like, two of his sort of preferences play out. That's Annie Linsky, a political reporter for The Post. One is he has rolled out senior staff members and cabinet picks who he knows very well and is extremely comfortable with. And many of those people are white men. They include Ron Klain, his White House chief of staff, who has been with him since Biden was in the Senate, and Tony Blinken, who is going to be Biden's secretary of state pick, another white man who has been close to Biden for, I mean, not really years, but decades. He's also named John Kerry to be a special envoy on climate. Um, in this role, he will have a seat on the National Security Council. So you have that one instinct, right? The other is Biden likes to use his role to make sort of history and and sort of barrier-shattering choices. And he's also done that. So he just rolled out a press team that is entirely female. Biden also named his ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, a longtime diplomat who will be charged with sort of restoring relationships with close allies that deteriorated a little bit over the last four years. But also, if you look at his pick for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she is going to be the first woman to hold that job. And that has been a job that started with George Washington's administration. So this is a job that's been, you know, two centuries of only white men in that position. And and he really wanted to to shatter that and, you know, show that a different type of person could have his confidence in that job. I, I want to talk more about Janet Yellen as the new Treasury Secretary. This is obviously an incredibly important job, considering that the state of the economy is going to be one of the biggest challenges for Biden going into this job. So what does Yellen's appointment tell us about what the kind of plan of action will be going into this new presidency? And what are the potential drawbacks of having someone like Yellen uh, as the Treasury Secretary? I think one of the sort of magic things about Yellen is that she has support across the board, in the, in, across the political spectrum. And you know that there just are not that many people like that. You know, even Donald Trump, who did not 
pick her to be a Fed chair again, did not sort of re-up that role. But he has also said very positive things about her. So hmm. she has managed to be a very independent voice and and has has built relationships um, and, and built respect in from sort of all sections of the party. So that is something about her that is so important in this moment where the economy is really teetering on the edge and so many people need help. And for her to be essentially in charge of economic policy for the administration and playing such a strong role is going to be important in terms of building credibility for whatever solution it is that the Biden administration is going to present. And that seems to be one of the big questions that a lot of people are asking right now. I think going into this process of imagining what a Biden cabinet could look like, a lot of people are reading the tea leaves of what that means about how left or not left Biden will actually be. And so what is the reaction that we're hearing from Democrats further left than Biden in terms of whether they see whether they see these these cabinet choices so far reflecting their interests and priorities and a sense of them being included in this process. I think that some of the names that had been put out there, you know, the, some of the names that were floated, and you know how this works, this sort of trial balloon process where, you know, four or mm-hmm. five names are floated for various positions. And that's where you can have people like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and others like that, you know, really shooting them down. And there there have been people that the left has gotten upset about, but those are are not, for the most part, people who are actually getting the jobs. And so in a sense, it does seem like Biden is being very sensitive to that wing of the party. Now, they did lose, right? There was a, a very robust presidential primary and Biden, a moderate, came out of that. There was, um, you know, we saw in this election that mm-hmm. left of center candidates did not do particularly well and and did not win in big races, in the big sort of marquee races. So I don't think there's sort of an expectation that they would get 80 percent, you know, but they're getting, you know, 20, 25 percent. Um, and for, for the time being, at least, that has tamped down the, any sort of kind of real outrage. And and what about the reaction from the Republican Party and whether these choices so far reflect people that Republicans feel like they can work with, strike deals with, uh, have a relationship with? Um, some of that it sort of remains to be seen. Um, you saw there were two individuals who Republicans have been the most vocal about in their opposition. One was sort of the notion of Susan Rice, a Black woman, getting picked to be Secretary of State. In the end, um, Biden did not go with her and went with Tony Blinken. The other person who has sort of garnered sort of immediate sort of visceral outrage from the Republican Party is Neera Tandon, and she is also a woman of color. She has been nominated to lead the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. And um, she's somebody that Republicans and some of Mitch McConnell's allies are signaling will have a very difficult time with confirmation. So what are the next big steps in the transition process, both in terms of choices of cabinet members and senior staff members, but also the other logistical things that can now happen that couldn't happen before because the transition process was held up by the president? 
There are some big cabinet names that have not yet been picked. There's Secretary of Defense. That's sort of one of the marquee positions. That one is a mystery at this point. That's an opening. Also, the Attorney General is a person whose name is going to be watched closely. It's another marquee, high-profile position. Also, you know, just given the virus and the state of COVID at this moment, I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on um, the Department of Health and Human Services and who Biden picks there. Um, I'll also say some of the sort of more minor cabinet appointees, um, the debates around who will lead those agencies have become sort of unexpectedly interesting. Um, one mm. is around the Department of Agriculture. There seems to be sort of a... Why, why the Department of Agriculture? Why are people caring about that? I know. It's not a, an I agency mean, no that's... No shame a, to agriculture, but... <laughs> no shame to agriculture, but it's not typically a high-profile job. It's not an agency that sort of makes the front page very often. But um, there's these two competing philosophies that are sort of playing out about what the focus of the department should be under under Biden. And, and one is that it should sort of play a sort of traditional role of looking out for farm interests, you know, a very important agency in, in more rural states. Um, and, you know, um, people like former Senator Heidi Heidkamp would sort of be a potential leader for an agency that's going to continue that traditional role. But there are some members of the Congressional Black Caucus, including the very important Representative Clyburn from South Carolina. He Hmm. and others are suggesting that the agency should be focusing more on a different part of its role, which is sort of food security for many Americans. And at this moment, when food banks are being so overrun, the idea of shifting the focus and, and, and elevating this other role that the agency plays is one that's being discussed and that sort of philosophically could be quite interesting to see which where Biden goes. And and just briefly, what are the, some of the other things that can now happen because of, because the transition process has started? I mean, we talk about like transition as well. Now the Biden team can get .gov email addresses. They get money to be able to actually do transition activities. But but what are the big things that couldn't happen before that are now in motion? The biggest thing is, at least if you, you know, from from Biden's perspective and what his people have been talking about is they will be able to have briefings with the different leaders of various federal agencies and most critically getting inside what the rollout plans are are for a vaccine. And that that is the the piece that Biden has been pushing the hardest on that you know he was insistent that this is a critical function of government and any day that is lost is going to be a day that more Americans die. And that is the the piece that he and his people were pushing the hardest for visibility into. Another piece is that presidential daily briefing is a top secret briefing of the most critical crisis hotspots around the globe. And Biden just today got his very first one and that had been on hold. It's usually something that the president-elect has access to. And then you have other agencies um, opening up their doors and beginning to have briefings and meetings with what sort of the incoming agency review teams is what they're called. And Biden appoints, you know, a handful of people whose job it is to go into each of these agencies and sort of try to understand what projects are happening, what deadlines are coming up, what critical decisions need to be made and sort of why they're being made. And that helps sort of the government turnover as smoothly as possible. Annie Linsky is a political reporter for The Post. 
there's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. On Monday, the drug company Moderna announced that it's officially asking the FDA to authorize the use of its coronavirus vaccine. That brings us closer to having not one, but two vaccines approved before the end of the year, both of which are reported to have been more than 90% effective in trials. There's very encouraging news. None of us expected that we'd see 90% plus effectiveness, nor that we'd see protection in the elderly to the same extent as younger people. But there's a whole lot we still don't know about the vaccine. Tom Frieden is the former director of the CDC. So he knows exactly how complicated it will be to administer these vaccines to hundreds of millions of people and what it will take to make it possible. We need a very systematic way of rolling the vaccination program out. It's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination programs. And for the vaccination program to succeed, a wide range of activities is needed. That includes logistics, but it also includes clinical education, tracking systems for adverse events, tracking systems for vaccination, community engagement to learn what people are thinking and share information. To get vaccine into people's arms is going to mean building, maintaining, and growing trust. Well, in terms of this idea of that it's not vaccines, but instead vaccinations that actually save people's lives, how do you anticipate that that process will actually work? Like, is it going to be a situation where once we vaccinate all the healthcare workers in the country that I'll be able to call up my doctor and say, hey, I want a vaccine, schedule me for a day? Or is it more like COVID testing where I'm going to have to get in a line someplace and wait for a couple hours to be able to potentially get access to it? Time will tell how this rolls out, and I would assume that there are going to be things that go well and things that go less well. Uh, This is probably the most complicated vaccination program in U.S. history, and it's happening just at a time when cases are exploding and at a time of political transition. For this reason, it's enormously important that the communication about the vaccine be from scientists, from public health specialists, from doctors who are not affiliated with any industry and who can provide clear information about what is being found with the vaccine, what we know, when we know it, and what we're doing to find out more. Ultimately, we would hope that you'd be able to go to your local pharmacy chain and get a vaccine. Like CVS, and when I show up and ask for a flu shot, it would just be like that? I think that will happen at some point in 2021 if things go well. But whether that's the first half or the second half of 2021, we'll have to see. Uh, At the beginning uh, of this effort, we had heard that there would be 300 million vaccines available by December 31st. And now we're hearing, uh, well, we're hoping for 45 million. And in truth, 45 million is an amazing accomplishment. It does seem like a lot. (laughs) It really is. But, well, it's enough for half that many people, uh, and there are 20 million healthcare workers in America, and we have to vaccinate high-risk people. And to 
protect the highest risk people, especially if it's confirmed that this vaccine protects older people, who, including the frail elderly, you'd want to really get every staff member and resident of every nursing home in the country vaccinated as soon as possible. Well, when we think about what the eventual end goal is here, what percentage of people in America would have to eventually be vaccinated for us to, quote unquote, go back to normal? We don't know. Uh, I think when you hear people uh, saying uh, very confidently, we need X or Y level of vaccination, the scientific truth is we don't know what proportion we need. Uh, we think possibly if it's really as good as 90%, and if that's lasting immunity, if we can get 70% of people vaccinated, that would probably trigger a level at which we would still have cases and clusters, but we wouldn't have explosive spread. I also have heard so much about the logistical challenges to potentially rolling out these vaccines in terms of the fact that they have to be stored at a very low temperature, so you need these special freezers, and then it's the two vaccinations, the two different shots that you have to come back um, three weeks later after you get the first one and you can't miss that second one. And I'm wondering how you think those logistical challenges and, and others are going to affect who actually gets the vaccine and who may not have an opportunity to get it, at least at the beginning or, or next year. The fact that um, the vaccines that are likely to be approved first will be two-dose series adds an enormous level of complexity. It's always really difficult getting people back three or four weeks later for a second vaccine. I, I keep using the example of the HPV vaccine, which I know that I got the first one, and I think I might have gotten the second one, but definitely never got the third one. And in that case, you have a fair amount of protection, but we don't know how much protection there is from a single one of these vaccine doses, and we don't know how long it will last. So I think that's one of the major logistical challenges. For the Pfizer vaccine, they're currently requiring these subarctic temperatures and lots of a thousand or five thousand, which is going to make it very complicated and uh, going to make a, a challenging rollout. And one of the reasons it's crucially important that Congress approves additional money for vaccine administration. The public health folks around the U.S. say that at least $8 billion is needed. But in any case, if you have a great vaccine, but you can't get it into people's arms, it's not going to protect lives or help us get the economy back. And I'm wondering, especially going into a new presidential administration and the sense that this might be a reset button for how the government deals with COVID, what do you think can be done from this point forward to help build some of that trust that has really dissolved over the past year? It will have to be built and built steadily because we do have a real fragmentation in this country on political lines. And uh, you build trust slowly. You build trust by being first, being right, being credible, being empathetic. I think the incoming administration will face three enormous challenges. The first is a huge epidemic with large numbers of cases. The second is a legacy of lack of trust. Politicization of this pandemic has meant that what one group of people believes, another group of people will automatically not believe. And we have to base it on science. And the third are communications and framing issues, whether on masks or on restrictions, 
that make what should be life and death, fact-based decisions into political statements. A vaccine is the single most important thing we could do to fight the virus, but it's not going to turn things around overnight. We need to do much better at knocking the virus down with nuanced, well-timed closures and with the measures like rapid testing, isolation, and contact tracing. I want to ask more about that because, uh, to me at least, it seems that one of the biggest hurdles right now is the sense of fatigue that everyone has has been feeling that, you know, we've sort of upended our lives for the better part of a year and it feels like we're no closer to stamping out the virus, that, you know, what's the point even anymore because uh, this is just going to continue to run rampant around the country. I was really curious to see some things you've written about the idea that we kind of did lockdowns wrong and we got the timing wrong and the government got the messaging about it wrong. Can you explain more about that? We are all so tired of this virus. We want it to be over. And it's human nature to kind of believe it is over before it is. And yet, if we ignore it, it will and it has come roaring back. And that is devastating to our economy and to our lives and to our healthcare system. Dealing with COVID fatigue is real. And I think one of the ways we can do that is to empower people to do some things more. So if we're careful, yes, we may need to close restaurants and bars for indoor service, but maybe we can keep retail open. And we learned in the first set of closures what people really care about. It's Haircuts. So maybe we can keep personal service open with masks and safety measures and ventilation. How can we live in the COVID world without spreading the virus in such a way that we have explosive spread and get to a place where we hope with a safe and effective vaccine, we can get to a new normal? It's not going to be gone, but it's going to be new and different. And what are the ways in which that more nuanced approach could be put in place? Like if you were in charge right now, what would you start doing? Well, first, we need a standard set of risk alert levels, red, orange, yellow, green. And they need to be the same in every state and every county so that you can know how hard it's raining COVID in the community that you live in and the community you're considering traveling to. Hmm. Then within each of those states and communities, there should be a public discussion of what the values are. One community might decide to leave churches open at orange, but require masks and defer singing. Another community may say we're going to go all remote. One community may allow barbershops to open. Another may close them. Hmm. And if a community at red tries keeping bars open, the community there, the public, can know that's a really unsafe thing to do. Do you think the wrong decisions have been made about that when it comes to prioritizing, especially children being able to go to school? I've been saying since March, I thought we should leave schools open. Hmm. Now, that's really hard if you have explosive spread. How do people get to school? Um, what about buses? What about teachers who are ill? We put out a report a few months ago outlining eight key steps that schools could take to open and stay open. Uh, and that includes things like uh, providing alternative accommodations for teachers who have underlying conditions and also for uh, 
uh, students who have underlying conditions, anticipating that you will have cases and figuring out how to keep educating kids around that time. But closing schools has limited epidemiologic benefit and big societal harms. I just have one last question, which is, you know, I'm curious what it is like for you being on the outside of the CDC now, watching this all unfold for the last eight months. I mean, do you are you relieved to not, you know, be ultimately responsible for this? Or are you frustrated watching, you know, some of the missteps that have happened? It's painful to have seen the CDC sidelined, undermined, and maligned. And it's unprecedented to have the CDC come up with policies that are approved by the White House and then have the White House attack those same policies. So I think they've been in an impossible position. The fact is that, yes, CDC made mistakes. In fact, every organization that's dealt with this pandemic has made mistakes. What we need to do is learn from those mistakes and build back better a more robust public health system at national, state, city, and local levels in the U.S. and globally, because it's inevitable that there will be another health emergency. What's not inevitable is that we will continue to be so woefully underprepared. Dr. Tom Frieden is the president and CEO of the Global Health Initiative Resolve to Save Lives. He was previously director of the CDC. As health officials predicted, colder weather has intensified this latest surge of coronavirus cases. And there's a fear that things will get worse because of Thanksgiving. At this point, more than one in every 1,000 people in South Dakota has died of coronavirus-related causes. That's also true in eight other states. New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Louisiana, Rhode Island, Mississippi, and North Dakota. Over the weekend, the U.S. surpassed 13 million known COVID cases. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you've been a little checked out on podcasts for the past few days, we invite you to catch up on a few recent episodes of Post Reports. Last week, before Thanksgiving, we aired three stories about the impacts of the pandemic on the lives of average Americans, on mental health, on women's ability to stay in the workforce, and on kids struggling with remote learning. We've heard a lot of feedback about these episodes, people saying that they felt like they heard their realities reflected in these stories. So if you missed one, go back and listen. You can find our episode archive at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 